the National Archives podcast series, Shop Workers, Tracing Your Retail Ancestors, presented by Audrey Collins. Shop Workers, Tracing Your Retail Ancestors. You probably had some retail ancestors. You may not know it, uh, or you may well know it, but an awful lot of people have ancestors who either worked in shops or owned shops. I expect quite a lot of you have worked in shops at some point, even if only as a Saturday job while you were at school or as a Christmas temp. Um, I've worked in three department stores, two bread shops and a greengrocer's. So it's something that is very much part of our everyday experience, whether we worked in shops or whether we had to go to shops and buy things with, with varying degrees of enthusiasm. Uh, It's very much a part of everyday life. It's something that everyone is familiar with. So even if you didn't have any ancestors who worked in shops, you will have ancestors who used them. Now, was your ancestor a shopkeeper or a shop worker? You won't necessarily know. Um, Your clue might be something uh, from a census return or a certificate or some other piece of information. If you were lucky and they were shopkeepers and had their own premises, they are a lot easier to find for a variety of reasons. They had more money, or at least sometimes they had more money. Sometimes they had spectacularly less, but you'll find records of them going bust in that case. Uh, But business owners, the shopkeepers themselves, are a bit easier to find. The sad truth is that if you've got an ancestor, according to the census, was a shop boy or a grocer's errand boy or a uh, linen draper's assistant you probably won't find any named record with them on it. Unless it was a family business. And a lot of shops were family businesses. Um, Families often combined running a shop with something else as well. So always be alert to the possibility that as well as the, the trade that the man of the house followed, keep your eyes peeled because quite often the woman could be running a shop as well. Builders spec builders in Victorian times would build a nice little terrace of streets, a little bit like Coronation Street, if you like, and on the corner they would put a slightly bigger building and make that a shop which his wife could then run. Now, that's not an absolutely universal experience, but you will find quite a lot of that. Uh, I've even occasionally found businesses where the shop has got the man's name over it, but it's plainly the woman who is running it because he's busy being something else all day. Uh, So... Look for multi-purpose families, if you like. Shopkeeping was actually a very good way of earning a living for women. It was something where you didn't need qualifications. You didn't need, in most cases, to have served an apprenticeship. Uh, all the things that, were, that women were barred from doing. You needed a bit of nous. You needed to know how to run a business and how to organise things. And you needed a bit of capital. And a lot of women you will find running shops will turn out to be the widows or the daughters of the previous owner of the shop. In some cases, you will find women running shops where their husband, now deceased, had a completely different occupation altogether. But they have been left with a little bit of money and they've been able to make something of it. They may already have the premises At the very most basic level, if you have got a tiny, tiny bit of spare cash, you can go and buy something very cheaply and sell it for slightly more money. And that could be as as low down the scale as buying bunches of watercress from Covent Garden Market and hawking them around the streets. But it was something that there was no professional barrier to you doing it. As a woman, you you couldn't easily get credit and you couldn't join the sort of boys' network. But if you knew what you were doing, you had a little bit of business sense and a little bit of capital and some premises, you could run shops. And I did a study many years ago looking through a series of trade directories. And I found very often when you've got women running businesses, if you look back a few years, you will find a man of the same name who is probably going to be her husband or father running a business, either the same sort of business or a related one. So when your head of the household dies, carry on looking forward a bit, see what the widow does. It's amazing how often they would have taken to shopkeeping. 
Sometimes you will get two related businesses, I like these, where you've got a husband running a business and his wife running a a related business, either on the same premises or next door. For example, a gentleman's outfitter and his wife is running a business uh, as uh, maybe selling baby clothes or ladies' apparel. And my very favourites were two couples, in fact, in Maidstone. It was a husband and wife and then their son and his wife who ran related businesses. In both cases, the men were surgical appliance and truss makers, and the ladies were corseteers, which is a nice business mix. The thing I like best about them, though, is that they were called Mr. and Mrs. Packham. Um, (laughs) And you can look them up. I'm not making it up. They're in the Maidstone Trade Directories, and they've got adverts and everything. So a lot of shops were family businesses, and that's probably the good news. And a lot more people worked in small shops than in large ones. You think of uh, some of the big department stores and the huge staff that they had there. Rather in the way that when you think of servants, you think of upstairs, downstairs, and the great big household, when the reality was most servants were in single-servant households. Much the same will happen for shops. You will find some people who are... Um, working for one of the big, big stores like Whiteley's or Bold and Hollingsworth. But most of the time, people who worked in shops worked in a fairly small business, possibly a family business. And unless you know the name of the business that somebody worked for, uh, it's unlikely that you will find um, a record with their name on it. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't anything to find. There is actually a lot uh, of information out there if you use a little ingenuity. If you are trying to trace your retail ancestors, you will find that you are something of a pioneer. So congratulations. There is a lot of information, and you won't always find it neatly listed as records about people who worked in shops. Having said that, most people worked in small shops. There are some staff records, wages books and the like for some of the large businesses. Very, very few But it's worth knowing that they they do exist, and if you're extremely lucky, you might find somebody in one of them. Now, the next question, which sounds rather silly, was the business a shop? Sounds like a silly question, but it isn't. You can walk down a street today and see, well, that's a shop, that's a shop, that's a building society, that used to be Woolworths, and so on. But when you're looking at businesses in the past, you're only relying on the records that have been left behind. Now, this might be something like trade directories, might be photographs, but you were relying on traces of what was there before to work out exactly what a business might have been. And it isn't always obvious. Very few shops are actually listed as shops. If you look in a directory, you don't find all that many people who are described as shopkeepers. You will tend to find those in smaller towns and villages. As a rule of thumb, the smaller the town, the more general the retailers were. In a sense, every little Victorian village had its own department store. There might only be one shop, and that shop would sell pretty much everything. And if they hadn't got it, they could probably get it for you. I can remember listening to um, radio, an old, very old radio programme, before my time, I have to say, much binding in the marsh. And one of the characters uh, went up to London and uh, he said that uh, everybody had told him how much bigger and better everything was in London. And he said, yes, there were a lot of bigger, better things in there. And they had the most enormous post office. And I thought it was very impressive. But when I went in, I was very disappointed because it might be very big. But they didn't have any paraffin. They didn't have any <laughs> tins of biscuits. Um, so in a sense, every, every little village had its own mini department store. And the bigger the town, the more specialist the retailers were. And if you look in uh, directories for London, and London is, as he said, bigger and better in, in many cases... That will have the most wonderful specialist stores. I don't know if the left-handed shop is still there in Soho, but it certainly used to be. And that's the sort of thing that you will get in London. You get tremendously specialised, very high-end shops, as well as all the, the ordinary things as well. Now, there are a few terms that you might see, either in a directory or some other record, uh, that might hint that something is a shop. Now, one of them is warehouse. Now, a warehouse might be a wholesale enterprise. It may literally be a warehouse somewhere on the docks, but it's also 
a term that was used for a lot of shops. You will see people uh, being the proprietor of a baby linen warehouse, for example, or something like that. And a warehouse was a term that was used for a kind of shop where most or all of the goods were bought in from a wholesaler or from a supplier, some sort of supplier or producer. You will also find repository. And that is a um, similar sort of thing. I think it sounds a little bit more posh than warehouse. Not quite emporium, but getting along that way. So a repository may well be a shop, but equally it could just be a rather grand wholesale warehouse. A merchant is another term that might be somebody who is running a wholesale business, or it might be a retail one. And it's rather like doing family history generally, that you have to piece together lots of information from lots of sources to, to see whether what you're dealing with is a wholesale or retail premises. Um, it does take you know, quite some ingenuity to do this, but you're family historians and you have naturally inquiring minds, so you will be able to handle that, I'm sure. Dealer, again, very similar to merchant. Um, tea dealer is very common. That's somebody who sold tea. And they're often grocers and tea dealers. But again, it might be someone who dealt in it as a commodity and who never got his hands dirty at all. So you, these are terms that you might find relate to retail and they might relate to wholesale. Now, you'd think that shop, that's nice and unambiguous. Well, of course it isn't because shop can also mean workshop. <coughs> so again, you have to look at the context Factories have paint shops and print shops and all sorts of shops within them. So the, the, the language is, is conspiring against us here. You do have to always look at the, at the context. And similarly, the word store. Uh, shop is a little bit smarter than store, but then we have department stores, not department shops. I have no idea how that came about. Uh, but they're all words that might be retail or they might be wholesale or something else altogether but it's up to you to discover. It's not usually all that difficult because you will probably be looking at something like a directory where it makes it quite obvious. If you're looking at a directory for somewhere in the high street of somewhere, dealers and merchants and shops and stores, they're almost certainly going to be retail premises. Another one which I didn't put on there because there isn't really room is sometimes you will find shops referred to as manufactories. Uh, and again, this is where most or all of the goods are made on the premises. Now, you would treat those terms with caution because something might start off uh, as a shop where things are made on the premises and sold there, but over the years it might develop into something where almost everything is bought in. But you keep the name because it's always had the name. So again, context is all. Before I leave that, I just want to uh, draw your attention to the picture, which I chose for a reason, which is not just because it's pretty, which it is. I mentioned in the, the last slide that a lot of shops were family businesses. And in these cases, the family literally lived over the shop. And this is quite a nice example there. You'll see you've got a nice little shop there with a, a double frontage, quite smart, and a door for the customers to go in. And next to that, you see there's another door with some steps, and that will lead upstairs to where the family lived. That's quite common. You'll see, if you start looking, you'll see that in quite a lot of old photographs of shopping streets and a lot of pictures and engravings. So that's the reason I picked that picture rather than uh, any other one. It's quite a typical one. Um, it's a very pretty building as well, but the, the point of it was to show you the, uh, the side entrance for the, the <coughs> occupier and the, uh, the front door for the staff. Something that you might want to look at, which only works for the 1911 census, is you get a family listed in the census and you've got their occupations. And if, the head, if they are plainly a family of shopkeepers or the head of the household is a shopkeeper, it's not always obvious from the census whether they are living over the shop or whether they've um, come up in the world a bit and they're living... Uh, somewhere in a nice suburb and the shop is elsewhere. But if you look on 1911 and if you go to the associated pages with each household schedule, if you go to the, the list, it's part of the enumeration book, but the, there's a little button called list and if you click on that, 
That shows you the neighbours in, in the surrounding area and the rest of the street. And the only piece of information that you get on there that you don't get on the household schedule is what sort of premises these are. Usually it will be private house, private house, private house. But it's quite nice if your ancestor or the person you're looking at is, for example, a confectioner. And you look at the list and you see that the premises where they're living is actually a baker's shop. Confectioner in the past is much more likely to mean baker than uh, a sweet shop owner. Although you know, it could be both, again, be aware for the, be alert to the possibilities. Okay, so what sort of information might you be able to find out about your retailing ancestors? Now, it's not like looking for records of people who are in the army or the navy where you've got a lovely big ready-made set of records and a nice one-stop shop, no pun intended, with the whole of somebody's career on it. You're not going to find that. And I hope none of you were expecting that when you came in. But there is a lot of information if you know where to look and you are, have a, a naturally inquiring mind. If, like me, you were a nosy kid, really, if you just like poking in details of things and thumbing through books and um, having a look in archives, catalogues, there is a tremendous amount that you can find now. The records that you find, you might find records relating to actual businesses. You will also find records relating to individuals. And this is where it's well to remember that your retailers that you're looking for, they're not going to come wrapped up in records that say these are records about shopkeepers or about shop workers. But you think about the sort of people they were. And if they were shop owners, shopkeepers, in fact, with a family business... These are precisely the sort of people who are going to appear in quite a lot of records because they're business people, because they're middle class people. They're going to appear, they're going to leave wills uh, if they've been at least slightly successful. They don't have to be very prosperous, but if there are assets, if there is cash um, and, and, a, and a business to hand over, they're going to appear in wills. So always look to see if there are wills for your retailing ancestors. They do crop up all over the place. And you will find them in lots of other things as well. If you've got the, you know, the great and good in a, in a moderate-sized market town, you will get the same people. They'll be members of the Chamber of Commerce. They'll probably be on the Board of Guardians. They will stand for public office. They will be the people whose names crop up all over the place. So you will find them as the pillars of the community, if you like. But what I think is really interesting about any kind of family history, really, is the social history, is the what people did all day sort of history. And there is a tremendous amount that you can find out about how shop life was, what people did all day, and it was usually a very, very long day. When I started researching into retail history, it was quite interesting. Uh, it was in the 1990s. And that was almost exactly um, 100 years after uh, there had been a lot of agitation and lobbying to get shop hours shortened. And when I started researching, at exactly the same time, there was a lot of lobbying to get shop hours lengthened. And it really isn't that long ago that you couldn't shop very much on a Sunday not that many shops were open in the evening, whereas now we have virtually seven-day trading. And I thought at the time it was quite ironic that people were now lobbying to get extended shopping hours when a century earlier people had been lobbying for exactly the opposite. The difference was, of course, that in the 1890s, the people who worked in the shops will probably have had to work all the hours that the shop was open, whereas at least those of us who were working in the 1990s um, still wouldn't work more than five, maybe five and a half hours a day. But there used to be a sort of rivalry among, particularly the, um, the, the lower end sort of shops, where they wouldn't put up the shutters, they wouldn't close down until the man across the road had done. And if any of you ever watched um, Ronnie Barker open all hours, you've got exactly that thing going on, that he wouldn't shut up sometimes until he saw that you know, Mr Patel or whoever it was in the other corner um, had shut up because he didn't want to lose business. And that's precisely what your Victorian retailers would have done. 
And interestingly, quite, it was sometimes the shopkeepers themselves who wanted some legislation that would limit their hours because it would actually make their lives easier if they knew that Mr. So-and-so across the road had to shut at 9pm no matter what. At least they could plan to shut at 9pm and not have to hang around just on the off chance that he was staying open a bit later. So it's not always the retailers who are against restrictions. Uh, Sometimes businesses are quite keen, the people who run their business as well, are sometimes quite keen to have some restrictions because it does make their life a little easier. And for shops, more than many, most other sort of businesses, you can find the most wonderful pictures. Almost every town has got at least one book which has got some sort of images of yesteryear or yesterday's Woodstock or something like that. There are a whole series of these things produced by Alan Sutton Publishing is one of them, and you get lots of Francis Frith books of photographs. And when people are taking pictures of towns, you get the churches and you get the big institution buildings and the town halls, but you get lots and lots of photographs of shops, lots of shots of the high street, uh, and it's not usually very difficult to get a whole series of pictures of the same street at different ages, if it's a high street or a shopping street, and see how it compares, and you can put that together with all sorts of other records, with census records, uh, with directories, uh, and so on, and build up a picture, quite literally sometimes, of uh, a whole shopping street. Because what is interesting is not just the business that your family worked in, but the surrounding businesses, what sort of a street were they in? If they ran a, a business... Were they in a general street with a variety, or were they in a specialist sort of area? If they were, were they jewellers? Were they in somewhere like Hatton Garden, where everybody's a jeweller? Or were they in a more general high street, where they were part of a, a general mix? Um, and that, that's all interesting, and that's all, you know, all part of the picture. And there are lots of these things around. Now, I mentioned books, but of course now there are lots and lots of online resources for images. There are big national collections. The Guildhall Library which has a very good collection of images relating to London, but also for lots of other places too. And I've looked at quite a number of local websites where there are pictures, if you've got uh, an interest in the Medway Towns, for example, the, the, there are old Medway photographs on there. There is a particularly good website for Oxford, which I discovered only a few weeks ago, And there are some tremendous street histories and histories of uh, businesses, at least the changing businesses in a few particular streets in Oxford. And that has links to lots and lots of wonderful photographs. Uh, My own hometown of Glasgow has some superb images online. Uh, The Mitchell Library there, which is one of my favourite places anywhere ever, um, has got a website called Virtual Mitchell, which is just some of the pictures from their image collection. Those are just the ones that I know about because they're areas that I'm interested in. But there are lots, and I'm sure there will be something for most, if not all, of the areas that you're interested in. We get very bogged down looking at documents and facts and words, but it really does us good to look at pictures sometimes. And there are clues in pictures too. Now, where are you going to find all these wonderful records? Well, this is probably the standard work on where you will find company archives. It's not the most brilliant one for retail things, but there there are quite a lot of retail records mentioned in it. Unfortunately, this uh, book was published in 1986, so quite a lot of it is out of date. But I've put it there because it's the sort of thing that you might think is now completely superseded by the internet. You've got instantly updatable databases that list where archives are. But there is still a value in books like this because... Within that, it has rather nice little histories. Um, there are some retail businesses listed in there, and it's well worth a look. We have got a copy in our library, or strictly speaking, it's on my desk at the moment, but I will leg it up the stairs and put it back on the library shelves as soon as possible. Oh, there's a librarian in the audience, help. Um, but that's a very st- it's a standard book, and you will see it referred to quite a lot. But most of the records you want, not surprisingly, are going to be in record offices. And you will use either this book, bearing in mind it's out of date, or something like um, National Register of Archives and Access to Archives, which are both accessible through our National Archives website. And I will show you that at the end. 
to find out where things are. And this is so much easier than it used to be. You can sit there in the comfort of your own home, assuming you have an internet connection, and find out where things are. There is a tremendous amount in printed sources. And this is something that you won't be able to do, at least not very much of it sitting at home. In my travels, wherever I go, if I'm in a museum or even a bookshop in a town that I haven't been in very much, I always have a look in the local section. You will find that there are often lots and lots of little local publications. They don't register on the radar at all. You probably won't find them in the British Library catalogue. Sometimes they're just little short print runs of things that maybe a local history society has done. And even if it is in the British Library catalogue, it might have been something that was done many years ago and there are hardly any copies around. But I always have a look just to see what there is in the local area. And I've got all sorts of nice little things. Some of them are, are relatively new, some of them are old. I also, of course, rummage around in second-hand bookshops and nowadays uh, on things like eBay and aid book books, um, although I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to do too much of that because it does become quite addictive and expensive. But there is lots and lots of material out there, and you find some of the best stuff almost by accident. But there is a tremendous amount where somebody has done a nice little history. In fact, I saw one of our regular readers is out here, he's researching here today, and he found a diary that had been made by one of his ancestors who was a shopkeeper in Cornwall. And he kept a diary of his buying visits to London for not that long a period. And um, our reader published this diary... Um, he copied it out verbatim, but he also added his own commentary and did a little bit of research on it and produced an extremely nice little book. Now, this is not going to be terribly widely available. It may not even be in print anymore. But it's exactly the sort of thing that I find when I am in museum bookshops, and I'm in um, the local section of uh, Waterstones or a WH Smith. So always go and have a look there, look in the second-hand bookshops, and you will sometimes find absolute gems. There are also quite a lot of um, official company histories. Um, I've got quite a few of these. There's a lovely Sainsbury's one called The Best Butter in the World. And um, when Marks and Spencers, who are now celebrating their 125... Yes, they're celebrating 125... Sainsbury's are celebrating 140 and Selfridges are celebrating their centenary this year. But when Marks and Spencers were celebrating their centenary, they got Asa Briggs, no less, to produce a very nice centenary history for them. And I've got that one and I've got the Sainsbury's one and I've got a book about Selfridges that was written by Gordon Honeycomb and quite a lot of others. And some of them are rather smart, newish publications and some of them are lovely, scruffy little things that I've found in second-hand shops. But there are lots and lots of these. And they're not always necessarily publications as such. One of my most prized possessions is one which is about John Speed and Lewis, who is the founder of the John Lewis Partnership. And it's a lovely book. It's a hardback, and it's got a nice cover. And it's a beautiful thing, but it's not a publication. It was produced as a limited-edition print run, and circulated within the John Lewis Partnership. I worked for them at the time, so I got my beautiful hardback book for £3.50 or thereabouts. I then lost it, but fortunately I found a second-hand copy, which I was very lucky to do. So these sort of things are out there, but you really have to go looking for them. Newspapers and periodicals are a tremendous source for uh, retails. Retailers appear in newspapers for all sorts of reasons. First of all, you have adverts, and the adverts are rather nice. Uh, sometimes they're just quaint and interesting, uh, and they're just nice, especially if they have illustrations. But sometimes they can be very, very informative indeed. You will often find adverts in local newspapers when a business owner has recently died, and his wife or his son or business partner is carrying on. Uh, so you'll get nice little adverts saying that you know, Mrs. Bloggins begs leave to inform her esteemed customers that despite her recent sad loss, she will be continuing uh, to do her very best to serve you, etc., etc. Very Victorian, very flowery. And you find quite a lot of that. And it's worth tracing them through a series of newspapers. 
Um, because you will sometimes find, particularly if it's a widow trying to take over, sometimes they do very well. Uh, the widowed Mrs. Packhams did perfectly well. They put a manager in, did very nicely. Uh, but sometimes the women struggle a bit, and you will see them advertising for a few weeks, and then you will see another advert saying that Messrs. so-and-so um, are now pleased to say that they, uh, they are incorporating the business formerly run by Mrs. Bloggins, etc., etc. So there is a story to be told through the adverts. They're not just adverts for them. You can piece together a story by looking at a series of them over a few weeks. And you do get the interesting little things like latest arrival from the United States, revolutionary, wonderful, new, baked beans. Um, I love all of that. It's a great thing about newspapers is you won't necessarily find what you're looking for, but you will find something interesting. Maybe completely irrelevant, but it will be interesting. So people appear in, in advertisements... Although not always as you'd expect, one of the greatest retailers, a great, one of the greatest showmen among retailers, uh, was William Whiteley, who founded a very, very large um, department store, which sort of still exists. The Whiteley's building is still there, but it's, it's now a shopping centre. And he was a great promoter of his business, but he did not believe in advertising, because... He realised rather astutely that if you, if you put on enough of a show, if you created news, you didn't have to pay for advertising. So although Whiteley's did insert adverts in newspapers, they didn't do it until after Mr Whiteley had passed on. Well, when I say passed on, that makes it sound rather peaceful, and it wasn't. Um, even Mr. Mr Whiteley's exit from this world was very spectacular. He was, he was shot on the pavement outside his own store, uh, by a man um, claiming to be his illegitimate son. So, you know, he was a news item to the very end. Uh, the other great retailing showman was Gordon Selfridge. And you'll have to be very quick if you want to catch this, but I mentioned it was Selfridge's centenary year, and they have an exhibition on in their basement, but it's only on until the end of August. So if you don't catch it in the next few days, you'll miss it altogether. But if you happen to be at that end of Oxford Street, it's well worth a look. Quite, it's rather a good exhibition. There are lots of artefacts and news cuttings and a little film and everything. Um, but I think William Whiteley and Gordon Selfridge were the two great showmen among retailers. But there is an argument that says retailing is a branch of show business. And all retailers are actors, really. There's a lot in that. So adverts and news stories, if you're proprietor, get shot on the pavement. But you will also get all sorts of other things. Retailers appear in the news when people steal things from their shops and they're giving evidence in court. You will sometimes find the shopkeepers themselves in the newspapers. They've been hauled up for selling short measure. So there's quite a lot of that sort of thing. And it's worth just picking an issue at random from a local paper and having a look through you may not find your particular person, but you get a very good idea of what's going on. And I had a look in um, a Watford newspaper, or a couple of Watford newspapers, just to see one, one year what, what, what Christmas was about in Watford in the 1890s. At the time, I worked in a store that was called Truins. It's now John Lewis Watford. Um, and I just took a notion to see what Watford was like 100 years earlier. And the newspapers have wonderful accounts of Watford's preparations for Christmas. And they have a wonderful description of these special shopping evenings uh, that were being put on. And all the shops would have special displays on. And there was sort of mild alarms when some of the feathers in a shop window caught fire. But that was all right because they were all fire was put out without mishap. Uh, but it was a real carnival atmosphere, and uh, uh, the only slight damper on the proceedings was uh, because it was extremely cold, and the evening was meant to finish with a procession with a brass band going up to the town hall, but that didn't entirely work because it was so cold uh, that the valves of the instruments froze, so they couldn't have the music. Um, but all very evocative and gives you quite some idea of what shopping in December in Watford in the 1890s would have been like, that you would never find in any official record. So do look at newspapers and periodicals. And periodicals, as opposed to the newspapers, um, are very good for retailing. You get trade journals. Most trades have their own, uh, well, often a number of, of newspapers, 
specialist things. There are publications, quite well-known publications, like The Grocer, The Tailor and Cutter. But over the years, there have been many, many of these. Now, the British Library <coughs> newspaper collection at Collindale has an excellent collection of these things. And they are terrific for getting, again, an idea of what was going on, what the issues were at the time. If you're really lucky, you might find an ancestor in there. Um, if he was somebody of some substance, you might get an obituary when he dies. They're, they're always worth looking for in the specialist press. But you will get what the issues were at the time. And you'll see what the hot topics were, what people are writing letters about, what they're getting agitated about. And in the history of retailing, you will always get retailers protesting about something that somebody else is doing that is unfair. And often that turns out to be on the grounds that I didn't think of it first. Department stores were terribly resented by a lot of other retailers when they started up because they had these rather underhand tactics like having fixed prices so you, d you didn't haggle. You, you couldn't then suss out your customer on the basis of how prosperous they looked and charge them accordingly, which some shops would do. And also that you could go into a department store without any obligation to buy. And that was a very big deal. So there were all sorts of things. Uh, they were accused of being um, unfair because um, they might be selling, uh, in a food hall, they might only be selling things which were not perishable. Well, that wasn't fair because we sell perishable things and uh, they go off. So they're, they're un you can often make an argument for if you'd thought of it, you would have done it, wouldn't you? But you really get a feel of what's going on and you can see trades coming and going and trades that are in decline. So um, time spent reading um, old newspapers and periodicals um, is never really wasted. Now... Official records that you might find, what kind of things might you find? Well, if you're extremely lucky, you might find actual staff records. Not very often, but you will get those for some of the large organisations that actually kept staff records. And often, there wouldn't be in, in a small business, there wouldn't be any need to keep a staff record because you, didn't, you weren't bothered in Victorian times by um, tedious things like national insurance and income tax it was everything was cash in hand, uh, uh, so there often wouldn't be any need to keep detailed records. And even if you did, there was no particular reason to keep them for any length of time. So most records that were kept at all wouldn't have survived very long. It was just so much clutter, so much waste paper. But larger organisations are slightly more likely to have made records in the first place. And if you're extremely lucky, they might even have kept them. Having said that, a lot of the big retail groups, department stores, chain stores, that have archives and appear to have lots of records, there will often be things that don't include lists of the actual staff, uh, which is a shame, but you shouldn't ignore them because there still might be lots of items of interest in there that will tell you at least about the business that your ancestor worked in, even if it doesn't tell you about them working in it. Things like accounts and minutes are what things are often catalogued as, and they're worth looking at. They look terribly dry, but sometimes they're very interesting. Um, if you've got accounts that are money in and money out, you can see what sort of commodities somebody was buying in and what they were selling them for. Depends on the sort of accounts they kept, how detailed they were. But don't think, oh, table of figures, boring. Um, yes, they might be very boring, but just have a quick look before you dismiss them out of hand. And you might have things like minutes of the uh, meetings of the boards of directors, which are probably quite dull, but just occasionally there'll be a big ruck and a row and that might all get written down. So worth looking at. Legal records. Lots and lots of them. Many kinds of legal records. Retailers would have interacted with the legal system for all kinds of reasons. Now, I've already mentioned getting holed up in court for short measure so, uh, and for thefts from businesses, of which there has always been a very great deal. So you will find those, as well as in the newspapers, you might find them in the official records of courts. The other thing that, that retailers would have had to do with courts is they may have had to get a license of some kind, depending on what they were selling and when they were selling it. An obvious one would be wines and spirits. 
but also if you were selling game, you might have to have a license for that. So always have a look to see if it's the sort of trade uh, that would have need to get some kind of authorization, some kind of license. And although I'm really talking about shops and not about markets, there is an overlap between the two. And there are all sorts of rules and regulations and laws relating to markets. It was a great thing for a medieval town to get a charter so that it could hold a fair or a market. And over the years, these sort of morph into fixed shops sometimes. It's a little bit of an aside, but just in case anyone is interested, the records of the borough market, uh, which is now a terribly upmarket, foodie sort of place to go and, and eat and drink all sorts of fascinating and expensive things, uh, but the borough market uh, in South London has tremendous number of records at the London Metropolitan Archives. And it wasn't just a market. Some of the premises there actually were shop, permanent fixed shops, but they were part of the borough market. Um, and I, I have looked at some of these, and there are some amazing things in there. There are photographs from 1950s of Sharabang outings, uh, and there are photographs of each bus, and outside each bus you get all the men who are going to go on that bus off to their, their trip to Margate or wherever they were going. Uh, and these are absolutely tremendous, and they're all in their best clothes. And there are um, big accounts of big charity sports day, Borough Market sports day in fate, uh, with lists of donations that all the, um, the, the shopkeepers and stallholders have donated towards prizes at this event. Uh, and one year, um, Charlie Chaplin uh, was on one of his visits to London and he made a celebrity appearance and there was a signed photograph of Charlie Chaplin to be one. There are boxfuls and boxfuls of this stuff. The fire-watching rotor during the Second World War. So that's a bit of a digression. But I couldn't resist it because those records are so wonderful. Borough Market, fantastic. As far as I know, there isn't very much for Covent Garden Market, which is rather a shame. Uh, but the Borough Market is absolutely terrific. So if you've got any kind of association uh, with anyone who had a business there, it's worth looking into. Go back to the legal records. So you've got shopkeepers own misdemeanours, shopkeepers as witnesses or victims of crime, and you also uh, have licensing. So, uh, And then you will also get transfers of property, bills of sale. So there are all kinds of reasons why shopkeepers would interact with the legal system. So there are all sorts of uh, official records that people will appear in. Inventories, I, have, I will mention. Now, these, I don't, by these I don't just mean probate inventories, although you will get those too. But sometimes when you will get... Um, bills of records of uh, the sale of a property or adverts for the sale of a property, you will sometimes get great lists. And I found a lovely one in the um, Centre for Kentish Studies. I was just looking at shops there. Well, you know, why not? And uh, a lovely list of all the stock in trade in a particular shop with the quantities of everything. It's obviously being sold as a going concern with all the stock. And it included all sorts of fascinating things including a couple of items I couldn't quite figure out. There were segas and cherets. Um, and I looked in a couple of dictionaries. I couldn't make this out. And then I realised, when again, context is all. When I looked at all the other things they were selling, and this was a very general kind of store, I realised that they also sold tobacco goods. These were cigars and cheroots. Uh, but that's a lovely sort of thing. And I mentioned legal records, and that's quite a good way of getting into where you might find things. A lot of the records that you find in local record offices are in miscellaneous collections, and they won't necessarily be catalogued as records relating to this or that business, but there's an awful lot of stuff comes in in solicitors' papers. If a firm of solicitors actually doesn't throw their old records on a bonfire or in a skip, but gets them deposited in a record office... Uh, sometimes what is in there will include all sorts of transactions and letters relating to their clients. And some of their clients are going to be shopkeepers. So this is a bit of a roundabout thinking. Don't just look at records that are catalogued as having to do with shops. Look at records that might include records of shops. And even when you are looking for records of particular shops, 
Don't look for shops as such. Well, look for shops anyway, because there will be some. But think in terms of particular trades. If you look for, for, as a key search term in indexes, if you look for drapers and bakers and tailors, you will find an awful lot more than if you look for shopkeepers. Insurance records. Again, one of my little rummages in the Kent Archives office, but I'm sure there are lots in other places. I found a nice little exercise book, which was an insurance um, salesman or a collector's book of the policies uh, that he had sold. And this particular book was to do with pol- insurance policies, very specialist this, on plate glass windows. Well, who have la- large plate glass windows? Shops. So this was a nice record of shopkeepers and how big their shop windows were and what they were insured for. And uh, there is a very, very good collection of insurance policies at the um, Guildhall Library, and they're indexed on their access to archives. Um, it's the, the, the Sun Insurance one. And that's a very good example of records that are not shopkeepers' records, but they contain a lot of records relating to shopkeepers. And I found another one in um, Metropolitan Archives this time, which was reports by, um, from the London Fire Brigade about fires in shops and described in great detail how various fires had started and what had caused it, which actually gives you a very vivid description of what somebody's stock in trade was and just how very flammable it was. All that oil and paint, you know, oil and colour men were very prone to having uh, the shops go up in flames because they had all this very combustible material. Again, the sort of detail that you wouldn't normally expect to find. And of course, it'll always be somebody else's shop, not yours. Now, what records might you get in the National Archives? We're really not the place you would come to to get your main uh, records about retailing ancestors, but we do have some. Now, we do have lots of records about bankruptcies and winding up of companies, some of which, of course, will be retailers. Although a lot of these records are at least an indication of these events you will find in the London Gazette. London Gazette is a wonderful publication. Uh, it has a lot more in it than just bankruptcies and um, awards of gallantry medals. Uh, but it is very, very good for finding out what happened to various businesses. And uh, it's quite surprising sometimes how many businesses seem to have been in bankruptcy and then came back. So it's always worth just uh, putting the putting the name of a business in as a search term in the online uh, search engine for the London Gazette. You never quite know what you're going to find on, on your, your friends, ancestors, families. That's quite fun. So that's a useful source. And London Gazette, you will find things in. And also using our online catalogue, uh, that's quite well. We're quite well catalogued for uh, searching for companies that way. Not a shop record as such, but the Valuation Office survey which is just before the First World War, that's a fantastic source for buildings. So if you have someone who was running a shop, and you might well have discovered this in the 1911 census, the Valuation Office survey might give you a very great deal of information about the, the physical shop. Uh, it will, if you're lucky, you will get the building described, you'll get the size and extent of it, the materials that it's made of, what the individual rooms are used for. So that's a, a, a terrific source. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful source that I, I just like to point people at for all sorts of reasons. Uh, but I think for shops, it's very, very well worth uh, looking at. And um, a really obvious one, wills and death duties. Now, we have the PCC wills. Local record offices have their own probate records for the, the lesser courts. And the good news about most records for wills is that they are usually indexed by occupation as well as by name. So if you're interested in a kind of shop, maybe not your particular ancestor or you despair of ever finding them, but if you want to know about linen drapers in a particular town, it's not usually very difficult to find out. If you look on our index on documents online to the PCC wills, you can search that by occupation and by place. And you can do the same with some other probate courts. And there are lots of uh, probate indexes in print. And they're often indexed by occupation as well as by name. So that they're well worth looking at. And associated with that, if you can find a probate inventory, 
they are absolutely wonderful, if only you can understand what all the terms mean, but then that's, that's a, an interesting study in itself. And death duties, uh, which we have, local record offices won't have these, but we will have them for roughly 1796 up to the end of the 19th century. They tell you the value of an estate and what actually happened, which may be not quite the same as what somebody puts in their will. So if you're looking at wills, if there is an associated death duty record, have a look at that. And if you can find an inventory, look at that too. You don't get a lot of inventories after about the middle of the 18th century, but you do get some, so it's always worth looking just in case. And this is um, a source that we have. My excuse for using this picture isn't just that it's a lovely shot of one of London's most spectacular and interesting department stores. Uh, For anybody who didn't recognise it, that's Liberties in Regent Street. And that particular view of it is um, one where they're displaying a rather good copy of the, the Royal Arms because they're royal warrant holders. And if you are a supplier of goods and services to the royal household, you are entitled to your royal warrant. And we have records of that. Your handout has actually got the, um, the, the two research guides that relate specifically to royal warrant holders. They appear, royal warrant holders appear in the London Gazette in the, from at least 1901 onwards. And although this is a spectacular picture of uh, liberties and it's a, it's a beautiful gilded coat of arms and there's portcullis on it and everything, it's wonderful. It's not just big businesses that have royal warrants. If you look at the lists, um, you will see there are some really quite small and modest ones. And if you had an ancestor who ran a sweet shop or something on the Isle of Wight or somewhere near Sandringham or Balmoral, a lot of these people um, are um, royal warrant holders uh, in quite a modest way. So don't assume it's only just the great and good Uh, and the big department stores and the jewellers. You do get quite modest little shops, so it's worth having a look. And if you have a royal warrant, it doesn't last indefinitely. It's only for so long as you are supplying the goods and services. And if Her Majesty changes her mind, uh, then your royal warrant is gone. For many years I worked for the John Lewis Partnership, and I worked for Peter Jones, which is much the poshest of all the John Lewis shops. And at the time which was in the mid-1970s, it didn't actually have a royal warrant. Cayley's in Windsor, which is uh, now closed down, that had a royal warrant. And Waitrose, the supermarket in the John Lewis partnership, had a royal warrant. But Peter Jones didn't. It's got it back now. But um, it's worth having a look through a whole series of records because somebody might have had a royal warrant briefly, Uh, and just the ones. So worth looking at if you've got time on your hands. Finally, a bit of background of what people did all day. I wish this shot was a little bit more obvious, but some of you might recognise what sort of contraption that is. It's, uh, I I took it at uh, Beamish Open Air Museum, and it's the, I'm not sure if it's a Lamson system, but it's one of those wonderful systems for sending the cash, either in a tube or a ball, whizzing around the shop. Um, There was actually a whole book all about overhead cash systems, believe it or not. It's one of those little shire books. And that's that's one of the most evocative things when people recognise this. They go, oh yes, I remember those. um, Sadly, the generation of us that remember these things (laughs) is going. But you can find out a lot in books. Now, on your reading list, I've given you a, a very small list of books that will tell you a lot about retail. But don't neglect fiction. Dickens is particularly good. Why you've got just an incidental account of what is going on, a trip to the shops, um, something like Lark Rise to Candleford or History of Mr. Polly. Um, these are tremendous for describing just fairly everyday occurrences. Dickens was great because he wrote in serial form and if he needed a, to pad out a bit before he got to the cliffhanger, he would just take a little diversion and it would be a visit to a shop. Or in something like um, Sketches by Boz, there are just nice little articles. He was a journalist, really, about a shop. Uh, and these are just wonderful. sort of thing you won't get in an official source because there's no official reason to record it, but a very vivid picture, word picture, of what shopping was like and what uh, shop work was like. Ephemera stuff. One of the illustrations earlier on was just a billhead from Perks 
grocers. I've got a whole stack of these. I just got a job lot on, on eBay, sorted documents. And you can see they've all got holes in the middle where they've been on a spike. But some of these billheads were fantastic. That wasn't even one of the most elaborate ones. And there are lots of these things around. Um, there is an ephemera society. There are ephemera fairs. Um, I've also got um, a, something which is actually very easy to come by, a little um, glass medicine bottle with Boots Cash Chemist written on it. Uh, they're not quite ten a penny, but they're not expensive either. Um, and these are that's nice things to have. It's on my bathroom window ledge. looks rather good. Museums. There are some terrific museums. I've put on your handout some of my particular favourites that I know have got really good shop displays in there. Beamish and uh, the Black Country Museum. The Museum of London, I've put on the list. That is temporarily closed. Well, half of it is the modern galleries, which is the really good bit for shops. But that's supposed to be opening, uh, reopening again next year. So I've put it on the list uh, because as well as being in, having inquiring minds, I'm sure you're patient as well. And it certainly used to be very, very good. I hope the new refurbished galleries will also be good. If, if they're not, I'll have to eat my words. But they are terrific for seeing all the uh, just things in context. Sometimes you will get a whole shop, lock, stock and barrel that's been completely recreated and they're just tremendous fun. And there are some terrific websites. I've put on your list some of the, the, the websites uh, that I think are particularly useful. And uh, I just wanted to show, to finish off by just showing you a couple of them. Unfortunately, a lot of the big retailers don't have terrific archives, but a couple of them that are very good. This one is the Memory Store. This is one that John Lewis have done. Um, I think of big retailers, I think John Lewis and Sainsbury's are probably the two best for putting really interesting things on their websites. And you'll see there, you can go into all sorts of sections in there. There are timelines, there are rec- um, sort of contributions and recollections from people who've worked there. There are pages from staff magazines, all sorts of things. And that's a wonderful example. Um, it's a project that's ongoing, uh, and the, the archivist for John Lewis, Judy Faraday, is very involved in this. Uh, and this is uh, it's a very exciting project. And uh, there is uh, Peter Jones, although it didn't look like that when I worked in it. It uh, was quite a different building. Another one, that's the, the Sainsbury's archive, that's actually at the, uh, the museum in, in Docklands. And I said, there are only the, the two that have got really good, very accessible archives. There are a lot of others that may have archives, but they're kind of uh, well hidden. If you're in business uh, and times are a bit hard, your archives is probably one of the things that you feel most comfortable about cutting. So long as they don't get rid of them, I suppose we can live with that. Um, but that's just a, a nice example. Finally, I just want to show you, if you go onto our own National Archives website, if you go into Search the Archives and then go to National Register of Archives, which I mentioned earlier on, that is where you can search to see where records are held. If you go into Search by Corporate Name and put in, for example, oh, this is a nice one. There's a more elaborate search, but if I do a simple one, Lob the Bootmaker... And that shows you the records, all sorts of things, ledgers, order books, pattern books, photographs, royal warrants, um, held at the City of Westminster Archives Centre. And this one also links to the online catalogue, which they don't always do. And this one has got something that is neither a shopkeeper nor shop worker. I think it's in ledgers. That's it. There are all sorts of things. Ledger includes Alan Sears there's, there's one of them here that mentioned that's it ledger includes petty cash salaries bad debts so even if you were a customer if you're a bad customer you might just find that um, you mentioned in there that's why I picked out lobs as a good example but you can play this game with, with lots and lots of others uh, and, and that's really so learn how to play with the National Register of Archives search engine will open the door to all sorts of fascinating records. Now, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to go and research your retailing ancestors and then write about it and tell everybody else. But meanwhile, thank you very much for listening. If you've got any questions, I'll do my best to try and answer them, but no guarantees. But thank you. (laughs) 
This event was recorded live on the 25th of August 2009 at the National Archives, Kew. For more podcasts, please visit nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash podcasts.